1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Laura Lippman returns to talk about her new novel, Dream Girl, and her book of essays, My Life as a Villainess. Laura Lippmann's novels have won many crime fiction prizes, <coughs> including the Edgar, Anthony and Agatha Awards. Sunburn, her second consecutive novel to win the E. Dunnett Award at CrimeFest, was also nominated for the CWA Gold Dagger Award and was a Waterstones Book of the Month. Her most recent novel, Lady in the Lake, featured in numerous best of the year lists and was followed by the publication of her first collection of essays, My Life as a Villainess, which, if we've got time at the end of today's interview, we're going to talk about. But in the main, we're going to be talking about Laura's latest book, Dream Girl. Laura, welcome back to Little Atoms.
0: Hey, it's nice to talk to you. I'm sorry it's not face-to-face, but one day again, maybe it shall.
1: Tell us, first of all, how you would describe Dream Girl.
0: I would describe Dream Girl as a very conscious homage to Stephen King's misery in that it not only has crime fiction which all the elements of crime fiction in which I've been working all these years. But I think it is the first book I've written that has a sense of horror about it. This feeling that things can't possibly be what they seem and that the main character is in a dire predicament from which it seems very unlikely he could emerge unscathed.
1: So I just want to talk a bit more about this one having horror elements then, because... I mean, this is obviously a departure, but more specifically, the last few books that you've written have each been very consciously different from the last. And I want to talk about, first of all, I guess, why, why you wanted to do that. But also then, yeah, let's talk a bit more about working in elements of the horror genre as well.
0: To begin with the idea that the books have been very different from book to book, with which I agree, that was always my goal. Even when I was working within a series context and I wrote 12 books about the same character, Tess Monaghan, I was very determined I was never going to write the same book twice. There are a lot of crime writers I admire who had very long careers. And I, I'm not going to name names because it's rude and unkind, but some of these writers would basically write the same book more than once. And you say, well, I read this one before. Same kind of overall story. And I've always wanted not to repeat myself. It's the only way I can keep going. So for many years, I was writing these standalones that if they shared anything, it was that they had been inspired by real life events. And going back to 2015, so I guess we're talking about the mid-teens of the 21st century, I began thinking more and more about taking my writing to a place where I would be addressing the books that made me a writer, the books that I fell in love with, the books that were highly influential, which is an interesting thing to do because it's my contention that the books that influence us are the books we read when we're very young and kind of not critical. They're the books we read as teens and maybe in our 20s, so they might not be the best books we've ever read, but these are the books that kind of creep into our brains when they're still soft and forming. And so ever since I published Wild Lake, which was to me very obviously influenced by To Kill a Mockingbird, I've been working in this vein and I've found it really rewarding and interesting and it makes it inevitable that the books really change from book to book. So, you know, I went from Harper Lee to James Kane When I wrote Lady in the Lake, I was very consciously writing this homage to Marjorie Morningstar. And then came Dream Girl, where Misery is such an obvious influence, but there were other influences. Philip Roth's Zuckerman Abound* is a very big influence on Dream Girl. And this criminally underlooked, overlooked, I guess I mean to say, this unknown book called, a novel called Heritage, were all big influences on, on this book. And I'm still continuing to work that way I find that in coming at my work from this context of what made me fall in love with books, what were the stories that riveted me when I was young and sponge-like, it really adds a great energy. I mean, I've always found my work fun but I do think that it's a challenge to keep making it fun. I mean, I I really want to be conscious every day that I have this great job and I love it. I'm so lucky, but how do you keep it fun and fresh? And so that's how I've been going about it. You know, and Dream Girl in particular, I like horror. I don't read it enough and I have not read it widely. I do watch a lot of horror films and I watch them by myself for the most part because the other people in my household do not like horror, so it's very interesting to watch horror by oneself, and with Dream Girl in particular, I had just, this is the end of 2018, and I had just finished watching A Quiet Place, and I was thinking, not for the first time, about how much horror loves to deal with the idea of isolation, And it's usually very literal physical isolation. People are out in the country, their telecommunications are down. They can't get to anyone. No one knows where they are. They're off the grid. But I had this hunch that you could achieve the same thing in a congested urban setting. And I'd always wanted to try it. And after watching A Quiet Place and thinking about it, I was like, yeah, I'm ready to write a novel where someone's in a city, can see people, All the telecommunications work, and yet this person is still somehow very trapped and isolated. I had a hunch, and this is at the end of 2018, that people were more isolated than they really knew. That we had a lot of buzz and clutter that made our lives seem busy and full, but that that stuff could very easily fall away, and we'd find out how many true friends we actually had when push came to shove.
1: And then, of course, what you couldn't have known is that lockdowns were going to start
0: happening. I am not prescient. I'm the, I'm the opposite of that. I mean, I would look back through my history and say you could make money betting against my instincts on almost anything.
1: Let's talk about uh, your protagonist, Jerry Anderson, then. You raised the specter of Philip Roth. And, and Jerry Anderson is clearly one of these, you know, late, middle-aged, white, big beasts of American literature. Right, yeah. Tell us something about him.
0: Well, okay, so it's important to remember that Jerry is not of Roth's generation, but he thinks he should be. Jerry Anderson is a 60-something novelist who's had one really big success and other successes, but one book in particular has allowed him to live the life of the mind and live it very well. He identifies with Roth, Bellow, Updike, that generation. He feels like he has that level of gravitas. He is someone who secretly keeps waiting for the phone to ring in the middle of the night and to be told that he's won the Nobel Prize. I mean, he really does have that level of confidence, maybe even arrogance about his work. In some things, I mean, you know, Jerry is a very interesting fictional alter ego for me because we, he's horrible. He's terrible. Let's, you know, get that out of the way right up front. But I agree with him on a lot of things about writing and creation. I like the fact that Jerry doesn't fetishized research. He's, you know, does just enough. I like that he belongs to what I'll call team imagination, where he thinks you should just get to make stuff up and is somewhat tired of questions about the autobiographical aspects of his work. I had a lot of different writers on my mind when I was creating Jerry, but while I'm in my author's note, while I'm being comical and saying that he's based on me, I'm also not entirely. There's a lot of me and Jerry. I just think I'm I think I'm more socially intact. <laughs> you know, I'm someone who actually wrote out the pandemic pretty well because I did have friendships that I could pursue via text and DM and Facebook pages. I never felt lonely, not really, because as a stay at home writer, I'd put years in making sure that I had these communities to keep me company when I was home alone writing. So yeah, Jerry, Jerry's a snob. He's very much a snob, but he is well read He is smart. He is good at what he does. And when it comes to women, he's an absolute pig and he doesn't have a clue. He really doesn't. Like, I feel like if Jerry were sitting here next to me, he would like gasp. I'm like, how could you say that about me? Because Jerry is that most dangerous person of all. And that's a person who is very vested in believing that they're good which I think is one of the most dangerous concepts that anybody can have about
1: themselves. You mentioned the idea of novelists being, you know, always asked about autobiographical elements in their work. Jerry's, his first book was based on his rather unpleasant upbringing. He's had troubled times in his past, and he loosely based it on that. And so, of course, this is something everybody asked him. But his... And again, this is a book where we're really not going to give much away about what happens in the story because, you know, people need to experience that for themselves. But Dream Girl is also the title of the book that made Jerry a massive success. And so one of the themes in the book is in this book, Dream Girl, not his book, Dream Girl, is is the idea of... Taking someone else's story to you. So novelists using other people's stories as fodder for their own work. And there's been, I interviewed um the the great Chris Power a few weeks ago about his brilliant book A Lonely Man which has a similar theme and perfectly luckily just for us doing this interview now Laura just you know a couple of weeks ago in the news was the uh, all the furore around that cat person story
0: yes um
1: again about you know the fact that it turns out that this might possibly have been based on aspects of somebody's real lives um so I wanted to talk about your use of this theme in the book about the idea of taking somebody else's life as material for your novel?
0: This is something I really struggle with. Lady in the Lake was a full-up meta meditation on whether I can defend what I do when I take a real-life crime story and turn it into a novel. And I'm not sure it's defensible, but I'm also not sure it's indefensible. I almost think those things are beside the point. I understand why People value their own stories and believe that their stories belong to them. And one of the reasons that that's a legitimate way to feel is because there are times when the motion picture business comes calling and will pay people for the rights to their real life story. You know, Michael Lewis, the writer, the American writer who's written so many amazing books, you know, he's made a lot of people pretty famous and those people got to sell their stories and make money too. So yeah, your story has value, maybe has to be pretty extraordinary to have value. And then the next part is, but are you harmed by someone else deciding to tell your story? And again, I'm sort of like, well, yes and no. I mean, I think I have damaged some friendships because people have read my books and said, well, she stole my life. And I don't think I've done that with a friend except like little teeny tiny stories that are kind of funny, like a story about a friend who on a road trip bought some desired snack at a roadside gas station. And then when it turned out not to be the delicious thing that she wanted, she and her sister tried to flush it down a motel room toilet with disastrous results. Like, I, I'll steal stuff like that. I'm a little magpie. I'll grab stuff like that, but it is a really difficult argument because then we also have to get into, okay, well, I think that theoretically appropriation's okay, but then we have to look at how white the publishing industry is, super, super white in the U.S. So that means that the appropriation is more likely affecting people of color. We have to look at how masculine American literature has been, how many men have chosen to Right in women's voices. I am. There's this amazing podcast called Marlon and Jake Read Dead People, and it's. Oh yes, I've I've listened to the book. Yeah, and they just had one episode recently where Marlon James, the amazing Booker Prize-winning author, I can't believe anyone listening to this podcast wouldn't know who he is. He said that in order for men to write women, they need to read women, and. His editor, Jake, said, well, then in order for women to write men, do they need to read men? And he said, they already do. (laughs) I was like, yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, if you're sort of outside of that thing that keeps being identified as the default, which is white and male and cis and straight, you've been absorbing all of the stuff about that default all your life as a reader. So it's actually, it's like really not hard to write a character like Jerry Anderson. I, I know dozens of Jerry Andersons, white men of my age involved in creative endeavors who are a little bit clueless about the damage that they've done. So, yeah, I, I mean, but I go round and around on this. If we look at the facts, I'm putting that in quotes, of the case of Dream Girl, first of all, this is one place where we should believe Jerry. Jerry made it up. He made the whole thing up. And the reason he doesn't want to tell anyone what the inspiration was is because then, you know, it's like a magician revealing his trick. It becomes banal. It becomes, people will be like, how does that lead to that? How could your entire novel come from that? And also I think he just likes having it as a secret. And I, I support Jerry in that. I think he's right never to tell anyone, but it doesn't matter because there's still people who think he stole it anyway. And that's something else that happens with writing is there are people who think they're in your books when they're not. And believe me, there's no dealing with that. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify.
1: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Laura Lippmann, and we're talking about her latest book, Dream Girl. And Laura, we are going to talk about my life as a villainess in the second half in a little bit, but I just wanted to talk about one other aspect of Dream Girl before we move on. And that is Baltimore itself, but more specifically, the apartment. So Jerry is basically trapped. In a apartment, a brand new uh, luxury apartment that he's bought recently in Baltimore. That, as you said, it looks out over the city. He can see everybody. He can communicate, but he's basically trapped in this apartment. And so, I wanted to talk about how you look at. I guess the gentrification of Baltimore, the influx of people from other places that are becoming, you know, from New York or whatever, to a place which is obviously cheaper to live or, you know, was cheaper to live. Tell us something about what's happening to Baltimore and and how you approach that in the novel.
0: I have to say, right, well, in in the novel, I send in my serious character, Tess Monaghan, to be my mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. And she expresses my conflicting ideas about this pretty perfectly, which is, On the one hand, glad for the taxes, glad for people who can pay more taxes, support public institutions like the schools. So there are upsides to gentrification, some. But at the same time, you know, where are the jobs? Where are the things that make the city livable for people who aren't rich? And Baltimore has had a really tough run going back to Freddie Gray the man who died in police custody, which led to riots before, well, it was after the Black Lives Matters movement started in Ferguson, but before the things that happened last year. I love Baltimore so much. You know, I've you know been taking these daily walks and uploading photos on Twitter. Everyone always begins, Good Morning Baltimore, which is a reference to the song from Hairspray. And on the course of my walk every morning, There's a part of it that takes me past a Ritz-Carlton residence. And then a few blocks away, oh, look, there's a dead rat. I never go out in the morning. I I walk really early, right before sunrises. I don't remember the last time that I didn't see people who were clearly homeless sleeping outdoors. It's a really naughty situation. And I guess my hope, my somewhat Pollyanna-ish hope, is that for people who are moving to Baltimore, discovering Baltimore, people who have income, and jobs, I just really want them to engage with the whole city. I want them to love it wholeheartedly. The city's and this is, there's a passing reference to this in, in Dream Girl. The city was, I don't know if this continues to be true. It was a big magnet for millennials before the pandemic because it was the least expensive city on the east coast, northeast coast of the United States, you know, relative to a place like New York, Boston, Philadelphia, D.C., Baltimore was a bargain. And my neighborhood was flooded with young people who didn't even necessarily work in the city, but they wanted to be close to the restaurants and the bars. And that's interesting. More and more, it's just my hope that, and I, and I do have young neighbors who are there for the bars and the restaurants but are also good neighbors and are part of the community, One of the things that really was heartbreaking about the pandemic is we lost our street festival, which is about to celebrate its 10th year. You know, my neighbors had created this amazing institution. I mean, the reason my kid goes to public school is because other parents, when my kid was a baby, were working to make our public schools good by volunteering more and by raising money. So to say it again, gentrification is... Is not all bad. I mean, I wouldn't live where I lived if it weren't for gentrification. I live in a row home that was almost certainly the home of a dock worker in the early 20th century. It's not even really supposed to be still standing. But I hope that people who are attracted to Baltimore by its low cost of living can also find something, find it in their heart to get something back to Baltimore because it is, it's a beat up place and it needs some love.
1: Tell us about the Jerry's apartment in particular, where that came from, because it is so well realized. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to say the the apartment is like another character in the the story, but it is somewhat his antagonist, not least that uh, free floating staircase.
0: There is literally only one high rise in that neighborhood. So everyone's like, oh, you wrote about Silo Point. I'm like, I didn't write about Silo Point. I know why you say that because it's the only, I mean, to my neighbors, I'm like, I'm like, this is something that's wholly of my imagination. And yeah, I really, I, I love real estate, by the way. I get like daily bulletins from Zillow.com. I could look at real estate all day, every day. I love to find really ugly things and put them up on Twitter. But I know a lot about Baltimore real estate because I'm so fascinated by it. And I know a lot about real estate in general, and I really did want to design this apartment that was at once beautiful, but kind of sterile and felt almost kind of malevolent. And it's kind of there in the sentence one, chapter one, Jerry Anderson's new apartment is a topsy-turvy affair. And it is kind of backwards. And to me, that actually seemed like really classic that you would buy a duplex apartment in Baltimore and the floating staircase would be kind of wrong. It sort of ask backwards or it's like, no, it should be going up into light. It shouldn't be going down into the darkness. So I had a lot of fun designing that apartment, but it, it is completely a figment of my imagination.
1: Let's talk about writing about yourself then. So you published the year before this, My Life as a Villainess," a book of essays. So what was, it, what was it like to take yourself as your subject?
0: It was pretty terrifying, and I'm still surprised that I did it. And I, I'm still not sure why I did it, because it broke a very long streak of managing to have a public persona that felt very approachable, because I am, and very personable, and yet there wasn't really a lot of information about me out in the world, you know, other than what it appeared in newspaper profiles. I, I had kept a lot of stuff to myself. And on my website for a long time, in the fact section, it was like, the only personal question I would answer is I'm not a natural blonde, you know, stuff like that. And all of a sudden, I'm writing about my age. I'm writing about, I've never been secretive about my age. I think it's silly to be secretive about your age. If anything, I think you should nudge the number up so people tell you how fabulous you look. But writing about being an older mom, which is where this all kind of got started. And, you know, literally, I was drinking. I was tipsy on wine when I proposed to an editor at the website Longreads that I should write about being an older mom. And what then sort of got me excited about it was something I should have known and maybe I did know, but I guess I'd forgotten, is that in the highly specific, one discovers the universal. I thought my story about becoming a mom at 51 who was, because of the nature of my work and the work of my daughter's father, doing so much of this alone, I thought this was so unusual. I I was like, this is like a freak show. I'm a freak. Let me tell the story of just how weird my life is. But when that essay was published shortly before Mother's Day in 2019, the next day at school drop-off, like every mom who talked to me was like, oh my God. And and it didn't matter if they were stay-at-home moms, if they were young, if they were old. And eventually I even got email from women who were exactly my age who had had their children as late in life as I had. So that was really interesting to me. The essay got so many hits and long reads that I was sort of had this open invitation to, you want to write about something, we'll let you write about something. The next thing I wrote about, which I still kind of can't believe I wrote about this, I did feel that I was exposing myself quite a bit by writing an essay called The Whole 60, which was basically a confessional about 40 plus years of dieting and how I finally gave it up and how hard it was. And all the ways I was screwed up about food and body image and all the ways I was trying to undo it. I'm still really surprised that I put that out in the world, except having put it out in the world, I found a lot of those struggles a lot easier. You know, during the pandemic in particular, because I had embraced this idea of I'm just going to eat whatever I want to eat, whatever I want to eat it. I just have to really answer that question. You know, I was someone who had, I had a pretty healthy pandemic because I'm just really in tune with what my body really wants and needs as a result of giving up dieting. And it just took off from there. It was my editor, my long-time editor's idea that I do a book of essays and I don't have any regrets, but I will say some of the essays in the book were produced for the book. And that was very different than just sort of sitting back and waiting to see what I was really ready to write about. And I don't think it's incidental that since my life as a villainess was published, I haven't wanted to write any personal essays. I did write one piece for The Guardian when I was asked, and it was by the editor of my early pieces um, about motherhood and body positivity. I wrote for The Guardian about the little silver linings. And I have some friends who really hate that phrase, but that was sort of the pitch of, did anything good come out of the pandemic for you? And I wrote about the discovery that time, which had always seemed like it was such a scarce commodity in my life. It was it turned out I always had a ton of it. But yeah, it's it's I can't, right now, and I know this will change, I think it will change, but I think it's gonna be a long time before I write another personal essay. I said a lot, and I'm still a little bit unnerved by how much of myself I exposed.
1: So I've been talking to Laura Lippman. We've been talking about her book, Dream Girl, her latest novel and My Life as a Villainess, her first and possibly last book of essays. Both are out in the UK from Faber. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me again.
0: Oh, always a pleasure. I was delighted to do this.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?